It's good to be with you again and to celebrate with you this day in which you can swing your parts of palm branches in remembrance of the day when Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the last time and spends the week before his death and resurrection, which you celebrate next Sunday, with people in Jerusalem who acclaim him as king and who reject him in their own perfidy. Palm Sunday is one of the high points in which we remember a historic situation of true significance, and I'm glad to spend it with you and to bring to you what the Bible tells us about it and to ask us to consider which camp we want to belong to, those who acclaim or who those who respond, who respond with a measure of perfidy, of deceit, of corruption, of reaction, of anger. Jesus comes to Jerusalem by all sounds according to the text, which we read in Mark's Gospel, though you find parallel passages in each of the other three Gospels. It's an important event mentioned by all of the four Gospels. He comes to that town as a king to be crowned. It is God who will reign over his universe, over his world. Remember in the Old Testament, the people of Israel had a king only for a while and only because they insisted. They weren't meant to have a king. God was to be their king. He would direct them by his word, by the law, repeated, confirmed, fleshed out, given life to, against all misunderstanding by the words of the prophets through many centuries. But at a certain time, in, reported in 1 Samuel chapter 7, the people said, we want to be like everybody else. We also want a king. And God says, why would you want to do that? Am I not sufficient? Have I not explained myself enough to you as your creator and Lord? Why would you want to have somebody represent you as your king? A king will not only give you direction and be a visible symbol of power, but he will also exploit you. He will raise the taxes. He will do things according to his will and wishes. He will raise an army. He will go to war. He will do all kinds of things because he claims to have that authority. So why would you want a king? Yet they insisted. And so God gave them a king, Saul, a king who disobeyed God and was dethroned until God and God replaced then by a shepherd's son, a shepherd himself, little David of David and Goliath fame and so forth. And much of Samuel and Kings talks about David. And God makes a promise to David and says, you will die. You are not a permanent king. I will give you a son and your house will last forever. There will always be a representative of God on your throne. First it was Solomon. The promise to David was, without a condition, I will be faithful to the house of David. The promise to Solomon was a conditional promise. If you remain faithful, you will be king and your descendants. And, as you know from the story of Solomon in the Old Testament, he was not very faithful. And thus, the kingship of Israel died out. 
From the time of the Babylonian captivity on, there was no more king in Israel. And yet, on the throne of David, God had said, there will be a king. And so, in, his, his, in the history of Israel, the believers always expected that there would come the time when there would be a divinely anointed king, the son of David. As we shall see today, that's what Jesus claims to be. That's how he is acknowledged. That's how he established his reputation. That indeed he deserves to be called the king. Israel was to be governed by God himself, by his law. As Paul says in Romans 9, that through God we have in Israel the law, the promises of the Messiah. A Messiah that had been announced at the time of the original damage done by the sin of Adam and Eve. When they, in hopelessness, hid in the bushes, ashamed of each other and of God, God says, I'm not done with you because you're too precious to me. Where are you? How did you get there? You've done something bad, with terrible results, but I will restore that. One day, a woman will give birth to a child who will be able to undo what sin has done. And in Israel's concept of their self-understanding, their relationship to God, their role as members of the human race, there was always the hope that one day someone born of a woman would come to redeem them and to redeem all of God's creation. Do not only deal with the moral guilt of rebellion against God, but also to deal with the existential problem of a body dying, of death entering into God's creation, which was not meant to be. Human beings were created to live forever and not to die. And the Messiah would one day accomplish that. And so the reputation that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, child of Mary, supposedly of Joseph, as one of the Gospels says, though he was indeed conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary, and thus could receive a human body without being finite as a human being. He was the second person of the Trinity, born of a woman, to exhibit to people in history the reality of God's presence, of God's favor, and of God's power and willingness to deal with a problem Adam and Eve had created and to which we all daily contribute. The acclaim Jesus receives when he comes to Jerusalem is an acclaim that is built on the reputation. The same Gospel of Mark from which we read the beginning of the 11th chapter in the first chapter talks about the good news which Isaiah announced. Now, good news means little if you are in a good situation. It means much if you recognize that we live in a world where we have a real problem. The problem of death, the problem of sin, the problem of all kinds of interhuman reactions and uh, opposition, as well as, of course, the tragedy of living in a world which tends towards death. And so there at the beginning, we are told, here, listen, this is the good news all of a sudden. There is hope of a solution to this. As John the Baptist reaches out to the people who come down to him, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. 
Repent and believe the good news. The time has come and the kingdom of God is near. There will be a kingdom of God and it's getting closer. That's the opening of Mark's gospel. And after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum, the first thing he does is he drives out the evil spirit from a man who is wrapped up put in a cage of the power of the evil spirit and Jesus says enough of that get out of him and then the gospels all of them tell us the various ways in which this Jesus son of God born of Mary sets out to exhibit the power of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of human existence uh, human relationships etc etc he heals the sick he feeds the hungry he argues with the Pharisees He exhibits the presence and power of God in all the different things, elements that you read in the Gospels, each with a different perspective, slightly different emphasis, not perspective, but emphasis and so forth. So when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he comes as one who has established his reputation to be indeed the Son of God, the long hungered for, longed for, expected Son of a woman, who would defeat Satan's work. When he comes to Jerusalem, people acclaim him out of an expression of, is this the one that we've been waiting for? And others look at him as a threat. Is he one who opposes the kingdom of Rome? The first group hoped that he would oppose the kingdom of sin and death. Others look at him as a threat to the kingdom of Rome. It's a sin and death that has been part of human existence ever since the fall. The Bible clearly says that what we now have as normal is actually abnormal. This isn't what God intended there to be. So don't blame God for all the things that go wrong for all the illnesses and sickness that you have, unless you didn't pay attention to the dietary rules that are coming from chemistry and physics and tell you not to eat too much sugar. But all the other things, the unfairness of life, what Solomon describes in the book of Ecclesiastes, that under the sun, between birth and death, all is vanity. There is no fairness there. There is no justice there. None of us is treated correctly. Some of us are getting treated much better than we deserve and others much less than we deserve. It's an unfairness. And to this, the King of Christ, the Kingdom of God in the person of Christ will come present us with a real solution as promised in the Old Testament. It is, after all, expressed at the beginning of Jesus' life when you read the two old folks who were there in the temple when Jesus was presented in the temple as a baby. When Simeon says in Luke 2, My eyes have seen your salvation, O God, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and and for glory to the people of Israel. And Anna at the old prophetess answer, response or adds to it, she spoke to all those who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, the deep longing 
that one day in real history, not just in the hearts of people, but in real history, would come one who would smack the devil and conquer death. And that's the reputation that Jesus builds up. Comfort ye, my people, is how Isaiah promised it in the Old Testament. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her heart service has been completed. And her sin has been paid for. And she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. And the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up onto a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Isaiah says that in the 8th century before Christ. And when Christ comes on the Palm Sunday to Jerusalem, that is in the hearts and minds of some of the people with him. Namely those who had seen what he had done just previously and followed him over the three or some years of his public ministry. In John chapter 2, we read how he cleansed the temple for the first time, a very offensive activity, except for what he pronounces. This is the house of God. It is to be open for all people to pray to God, to enjoy God, and to listen to God. And you have turned it into a den of thieves because you have commercialized access to it. People brought their sacrifices. They had to buy the pure ones right there. And the price could be raised because it was somewhat of a monopoly. Only those lambs were admitted. And Jesus says, away with this. The access to God is free to all. Don't turn it into theater or commerce. <clears throat> Pardon me. He healed the sick. He freed the man from the box in which he had put himself by some form of spiritual submission to powers that were not God. He proclaims to be the good shepherd in chapter 10 of John's Gospel against the Pharisees and the law who had those treasures but were bad shepherds with him. They did not administer them. They perverted them in their interpretation to their own benefit. They gave tithes to the temple, and thus they didn't have to pay tithes to the welfare of their parents. They said, we already done good works, and thus rejected those who needed good to be done to them. He said, I and the Father are one, an offensive comment to the Pharisees, because how can the infinite God appear in human form? Well, because the infinity of God, as the Pharisees saw it, is not the God of the Bible. God is not infinity. He is someone. He thinks. He decides. He's moral, faithful, loving, trustworthy, precisely because he's not infinity or everything. He's only good, only faithful, only works in favor of, our, of his creation, and so forth. What the Pharisees understood as this high divinity of God is not the God of the Bible. Well, the God of the Bible, who created us in his image, can well appear in the form of a human being that is made in his image to begin with. But that was unacceptable 
to the Pharisees. And so they set out to stone him. And he disappeared from their midst. This Jesus who had the courage to counter false teachers, false reasoning. Remember how the Pharisees said, you heal on the Sabbath, you must be doing something wrong because this is the Sabbath. And he says, who of you would not get a donkey out of a well on a Sabbath and leave him there? The Sabbath is made for, not, is made for man. It isn't that man is made for the Sabbath. Or again, when they say, you drive out the demons, you must be the chief of the demons. And Jesus says, oh, come on now. Think this one through. Wouldn't this be a house committed against each other? Why would a demon destroy another demon? This couldn't be well-reasoned. It may fit into your theology, but it doesn't fit into a reasoned understanding and discourse and study of the real world. And it's with this kind of reputation that he gradually built up uh, that he arrives in Jerusalem after the events of John chapter 11. We find the same record of his arrival in Jerusalem in John 12. John 11 points out how Jesus came to Bethany and Bethpage where he gets the donkey But that's also the chapter where we read about his healing of Lazarus, of his anger at death itself. How in his gut-level reaction, he was furious that in his father's creation, such atrocity as death would take place. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And we read there the Pharisaic reaction and the lawyers in Jerusalem who say, why, if this man is raised from the dead, he will collect a crowd. People will go out and see, as John, in fact, tells us, took place. And that's a dangerous gathering of people in opposition to our establishment. Mind you, that's not the, word, the words you find in the scripture. But that's the mindset described, a mindset with which we are so familiar in today's political world as well, where people feel threatened when reality questions their motive, and their claims to power and originality. And so Jesus has this reputation. Uh, Let me read you some passages from chapter 10 that precedes the 11th chapter in Mark. Where we read in verses 32 to 34... They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later... He will rise. And verse 44, For even the Son of Man did not come to to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here Jesus predicts on the day before, as it were, maybe the week before, that that is why he goes to Jerusalem. 
Yes, to be crowned, to be accepted, to be acclaimed as king, but with the result that he will die on the cross, that they will despise him, falsely accuse him, that he, they will kill him. In 46, we read that he goes on to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were lay, lay, leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, the son of Timaeus, Bar, Ben, Bar, Bar Meg, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped up to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has made you has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now in one sense, that's one more of those elements that build up the reputation that here is a child of God, the Son of God, born of Mary, the Messiah, who will rearrange a broken, abnormal world and give pictures and evidence of what is to be normal. Wonderful in this passage is the name of this man given as Bartimaeus. And there's much speculation, but also some reasoning behind the wonder of that name. Because if it is the son of Timaeus, who is Timaeus? Now, Plato has Socrates discuss the nature of God and the nature of reality with a person called Timaeus. And in Plato's reasoning, in his whole perspective on reality, that which is infinite and permanent, God himself, is never understood and never real. All you ever have is a representation, a shadow, as it were, on the wall of a well in which you sit. And Timaeus here says, I can't see. Of course he can't, because all he sees is a shadow. But you, son of David, make me see. And if you put those two things together, it is indeed not only make me see physically, which he is able to do, but really to make me really understand who God is, which Plato is never able to describe. Because the infinite cannot be described. It's infinite. It's Total silence, absence, otherness. Well, what does otherness mean? Whereas in the scriptures, God presents himself precisely as the one who has made a defined world because he himself has a defined character. Who can take on the human form because he's made human beings to begin with. Who can speak in language that can be understood grammatically and accurately because the Holy Trinity loved each other and developed concepts and argued with one another and enjoyed one another forever and ever. The infinite God of the scriptures is infinite in his characteristics. He is not infinity itself. He is without limit in his love, in his patience, in his compassion, in his faithfulness, but he is not everything. Patience and impatience, life and death.
true and false. He is not everything. And so, adding to this reputation is precisely that this is the Son of God who has given sight, who reveals to us the living God so that we can enjoy him. So he heals Bartimaeus. Following in this passage is that Jesus from Jericho goes to the next two villages that I mentioned in the text that is in your program. And that is Bethphage and Bethany. Bethany and Bethphage sit on two sides of the Mount of Olives. You first come to Bethany. That's where Mary, that's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And he sends his disciples ahead and says, Go to Bethphage and you will find a colt by the side of the road. Untie it and bring it to me. And they say, you know, it belongs to somebody. And Jesus says, no, bring it to me. He will give it to me. And when they come and are asked, why do you do this? The owner of the colt accepts it because, I believe, he was part of the party that came to acclaim Christ, who ended a service. Yes, please take him. The promise is you'll return it. Fine. Who believed that one day this Messiah would come? who has a whole history of Jesus coming to Jerusalem several times. And they're exhibiting his divinity, his love, his care for us. And thus, they heed the request and hand over the cult on which Jesus is placed. As I said as I started, the welcome of Jesus in Jerusalem receives a mixed reaction of fulfilled anticipation and of growing resentment. There were the believers in the Messiah in the hope that indeed the beginning of the reign of Christ had come, and they would be witnesses to it. And there were those who feared that Jesus would come to Jerusalem to provoke a regime change. That's what we call it today. That is to get rid of the authority of the Pharisees in their misunderstanding of the word of God Those are the Pharisees that did that because there were also others like Nicodemus who did not do the same thing. There were the disciples, the owner of the foal, who was told the Lord needs and will send it back. And this crowd together is out there shouting the Hosanna, which we have sung in the hymn. The Hosanna, which comes from two words, Yasha, which means uh, please uh, help and Anna, which means, please, we beg you to save us. This is that which we find in Psalm 118. With bows in hand, Lord, save us. We read in verses 25 through 29 in Psalm 118. This is the decoration, the circumstances of the arrival of a king. You say to yourself, a donkey is rather a low animal. People don't usually ride that way. In the Near East, you do. I've seen very large men riding on a tiny donkey, and the donkey puts up with it. It's a rather funny picture for anybody who's not used to it. But the donkey in the Old Testament, the foal in the Old Testament, is the royal means of locomotion. Horses are used in war. Horses draw chariots of war. Horses are powerful uh, elements of warfare. The horses of Egypt were drowned in the Red Sea, we read in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. Donkeys 
are the gentle animals by which a king rides to town. Not only is Judah in Genesis 49 singled out as the one through whom the Messiah would come among all the children of Isaac and Jacob. Let me get to it. But rather we read also, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son will bow down to you. You are a lion cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will never depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he come to whom it rightfully belongs and the obedience of the nation will be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to a choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk, is the prophecy that is pronounced about Joseph, I'm sorry, about Judah in the Old Testament, looking forward to the fact that the Messiah will come from the house of Judah. We read that in Micah's Gospel, that your peace will come from Bethany. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, yes, not Bethany. Bethlehem. Though you are the smallest among Judah's cities, yet nevertheless, out of you will come he who comes from everlasting. In other words, who is God in the flesh. We read more about this donkey business in 2 Samuel 16, 1-3. When David had gone to a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the desert. In 1 Kings 1, we read when David is near dying and Solomon is to be anointed king, we read the following. King David said, Call in Zadok, the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, when they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you and set Solomon, my son, on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Sabok, the priest, and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, blow the trumpet, and shout, Long live King Solomon, riding on a donkey. In Second Kings 9, we find the same thing confirmed. That the donkey is, in fact, the royal means of getting from place to place. In 2 Kings 9, verse 12, uh, is the crowning of Jehu. You know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, here is, the, here is what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him 
on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. And in the book of Judges, there are three different judges who all are known for the mules they rode, they and their children. One of them had 40 children and 30 grandchildren and was provided with 70 donkeys for them to ride on. Horses, as I said, were something to do with war. Donkeys had something to do with, a royal, uh, with, roi- with royalty. That's why also in the Old Testament, in the prophet Zechariah, we read what is often understood, what is understood as a description of the coming of the Messiah and his arrival in Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim with their horses, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoner of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. So the arrival of Jesus on a donkey exhibits the expectation of believing Israelites that the Messiah is amongst them. As John had announced, the kingdom of God is near. As Jesus had exhibited in the miraculous works of healing, feeding, etc., in the wonderful argument with the Pharisees, which he always won, in the exhibition of his compassion and love for the sinful woman caught in adultery, or the tired Samaritan who had had four husbands in a row, this Jesus was seen more and more to be indeed the long-expected one. And thus, when he arrived in Jerusalem with a throng of people following him, all those who had gone out to see this Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead the week before, now following him up together with the disciples and the women in the same Bethany, after all, Mary had anointed his feet with ointment in anticipation of his dying, in Jerusalem, they all come up to the gate and there are greeted with palms and cloaks thrown on the road as well as over the donkey. But the question is, how was he received? Or was he received only by that crowd? And I suspect no, because as soon as he arrived, people approached him not only from faithful following, but also from anxiousness about their own position. The Hosanna quickly, as we know during the week, turns into a crucify him. My father, who, as far as I know, did not believe, as I do and as you do, nevertheless always used the phrase, the Hosanna turns into crucify you so quickly. What received him there were those that went with him in expectation that Jesus would set up the kingdom. 
but also those who were afraid that he came, as I said before, to produce a, uh, a regime change, to abolish Rome. That's what they were afraid of. A political solution will come. The Messiah will arrange things and the Romans will get mad and they will persecute us. And thus we have to get rid of him. When Jesus actually had come for the redemption of Israel to end not the reign of Rome, but the reign of sin and death, of injustice. He came to change people's morality, their heart and mind, their actions resulting from a changed heart and mind as you as a congregation care about changing people's lives. That's what Jesus came to do. To end the reign of sin and eventually also the reign of death. The Pharisees, however, were so eager to keep their power, to keep their authority, their religion, their lawyers, their authorities, um, they were afraid that Jesus would produce a changed worldview. Like uh, people try to do in the modern world. When actually Jesus came to try to change people, to purify their mind, their heart, to purify them in the face of the problem of sin itself, to break the power of that sin of that evil spirit reigning over those who are caught by an evil spirit, of the brokenness and discouragement that is part of our analysis of the present situation, and to set before us the hope that Isaiah speaks about. Well, now that brings the question in today's reality of all of us as citizens of different countries, possibly I'm German. Uh, and I'm not speaking about your political system. Yet nevertheless, we need to ask ourselves, in response to this crowd receiving Jesus, do we belong to the people who see in him, indeed, the promised Messiah, who came to deal with the moral problem of our guilt, and who will return to deal with the physical problem of our death in the resurrection? Or, in fact, do we see him as one who needs to deal with a political situation? Is Politics, that which decides what is moral in our society. Or is what is moral that which should decide our politics. And I fear in the 21st century, all our countries tend in the first direction. That is politics first. We go so far as to say politics has nothing to do with morality. Well, politics should be an expression of morality, not a justification in and of itself. It isn't a question of whether you are to belong to one, two, three, or four different opposing political parties. And I say four because you only have two. But rather it's a question of what is my moral outlook on a given situation. Yesterday there was a gathering of people in this city and hundreds of cities around the world who fought for a moral argument, not a political position. They fought for life, not for the right to maintain a particular element of your constitution. They fought for the human being and life and morality and respect for people. It was a moral statement, not a political statement. 
they were in some sense or other much closer to the disciples who had seen what Jesus had done and said and wished to express to the world, their small little world, the larger world, thanks to television, that in fact we face a moral dilemma in our societies. The right to life, the right to justice, the right to respect, the right to compassion. Not claimed by ourselves, but given to us by virtue of being image bearers of a God who is just, compassionate, loving. A God who is forgiving. A God who is indeed grieving over the injustice that exists in the natural world and much more injustice that exists in the human world as well. And so is the political that which determines morality? Well, that's often the case. For people who want to hold on to their position, who dare not speak up when immoral things are done, because they are so anxious to maintain their position, their power, their status, their speciality, much like many politicians do, and much like the Pharisees did. They didn't want to shake the power of Rome and cause a problem, when in fact the Messiah came to shake up everything, to encourage us precisely to be more reasonable. He argued with the Pharisees to take care of the poor. He fed them to feed those that are hungry, to seek justice for those that are overlooked or mistreated or neglected. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what being saved from sin involves. Because it deals with the practice of sin that we should also be liberated from, not just from the guilt, but from the practice of sin as well. And so, let the moral decide what is politically pursued. Politics, after all, is only the effort to create an acceptable human situation in the city, in the polis, the Greek idea of the city, in the community. It has nothing to do with power play. It has everything to do with let us seek justice for one another, respect for one another. Why do we respect each other? Well, because we are all made in the image of God. There's only one human race. There are not several races. There's not a feminine race and a masculine race. There's not a black, white, yellow, green race. There's one human race. And the redemption that the Messiah brings first in the cross is a redemption from the guilt of having forgotten that and not practiced it. We are forgiven by God for the errors we have committed. And then, in the resurrection, which we remember next Sunday, we see the power of God to deal not only with sin, to teach us and to transform us, to affect our minds and hearts, to look at life differently in light of Scripture, in light of the person of, God, of Christ, but then also to look forward to a day of physical resurrection. The first fruit, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's the first fruit. Then comes the harvest. The harvest is when all those who have died have lost the use of their body are in the presence of God, will one day again receive their fingers, their eyes, their ears, real bodies, and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, or the lunch to which Jesus had invited the disciple after his resurrection by the sea, by the lake of uh, Galilee. Gennesareth, I was going to say. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's that which Christ came to exhibit. 
There is a link, why I say those two elements of Christ's work, to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, the immediate effect was moral separation. They hid in the bushes, they became ashamed, etc. And God runs after them and says, we've got work to do. I will promise the Messiah, and you've got to stop accusing each other. Yes, childbirth will be more difficult, and you will have to work by the sweat of your brow, and that's more complicated than it was before. But you must see to it that there will always be another human generation. And Adam calls Eve, the woman Eve, because she would be the mother of all the living. Because otherwise there wouldn't be a woman to give birth to the Messiah. So you've got to go on and struggle for life. And love one another and care for each other and imply the law, practice the law in the polis. In the way you arrange your community. In the way you show respect for each other. And apply what scripture teaches us. That's after all also what Jesus exhibited. He didn't just come to die. He also came to be the express image of God the Father. As Hebrews tells us in the first chapter. Verses 1 through 4. Jesus Christ, the express image of the Father. In Jesus we see what God had in mind about how we should live and treat one another. That's what politics ought to be concerned about, not the Pharisaic attitude towards we have a position which we do not check out in light of reality. That's what Jesus always forced them to do. Check it out in light of reality. Does it make sense? Is this really the fulfillment of the law? that you are such legalists about everything. And therefore, let us consider how we respond to this Christ, Jesus, Messiah, who arrives at the city as the King of God, riding on the donkey, the son of David, the fulfillment of the promise that there will always be a king on the throne of David. He provokes further and that's what you have to do when you go home and read through the next week of the Gospels, as well as the next week of time, to see how Jesus, what else Jesus does in this Jerusalem. How he cleanses the temple, probably a second time here. How he talks about the, the, the parable of the tenants of a vineyard who so reject the owner of the vineyard that they kill the prophets and eventually they kill the son. How they raise this funny question about, should we pay taxes to Caesar? When Jesus, when Jesus says, if it's just a question of taxes, pay him. You owe Caesar, he has his face on the coin, give it to him. He does, if he does good service, otherwise tell him he should do better service. And then he says, but what is God? Give that to God. And what is a God is, in fact, the fact that we are image bearers of God. So give your whole humanness, your whole personality, your whole giftedness, your whole skills, your whole hunger and thirst for righteousness to God. And practice it in obedience to God. Give the money to Caesar. Give your heart and mind to God. And then the next thing he does is he argues with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, who were seculars, who didn't believe in the supernatural or anything beyond the material. And who asked, make a joke, as it were, this woman who has been married for seven to seven men, whom is she going to be married to in heaven? And he says, there isn't going to be this kind of thing that you have in mind in heaven. 
they, using a strong Greek word, had in mind, who is she going to, pardon me, horse around with in heaven? A thing that seems to be somewhat common in public life these days. But rather, he says, you don't know the power of God, nor the word of God. God will change you. There will not be that which you are looking for, O materialist Sadducees. And then continues to say, the new command I give unto you is that you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love each other because you've been made in the image of God. He comes at the end of before the crucifixion, returns to that which is the overarching proclamation of Scripture, that the God who loves in the Holy Trinity, the Father who loved the Son, the Son who loved the Spirit, etc., as, John, as Jesus prays in John 17, that this love also be amongst us. To love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and each other, in the image of God, as neighbors and as ourselves, is that which Scripture tells us to do. And all the rules and regulations that you find from time to time in Scripture are merely an extrapolation, an enlargement, a refinement, a specificity applied to given situations. It's not more, it's not less. That is the meaning of human existence. To be a creature of God and to love God and each other. That's morality. That should be the basis of all policies. Let's pray together. Our Father, we sit before your word and pray that your spirit would enlighten us and apply it to our hearts and minds and give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not the superficiality of certain rules and practices, but indeed a profound enjoyment of you and a profound desire to apply what you teach us about being human. And seeing it as that one law that you give us, created in your image, we should love you and love each other and ourselves. We pray, Father, that you'd help us through this week. We rejoice that Christ came. The kingdom of Christ is near. We pray, Father, that it may come in fullness. O oh, Lord, come quickly. We pray for a restoration of your creation by the power of your Spirit in reality, so that indeed all the hardship of life will be removed and all unfairness will be replaced with righteousness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.